This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to the podcast. This is Kristen. And this is Molly. So Molly, right now, my favorite character on television, Mad Men aside, favorite character on television is a cheerleading coach. Really? Yes. Tell us about her. Well, she is portrayed by one of my all-time favorite comedic actresses, who we did not mention in our Women in Comedy episode, and I'm very sad to say, but now I'm going to talk about her because she's awesome, and her name is Jane Lynch. Yes. And she's hilarious. And um, she's on, she plays the cheerleading coach, this insane, psychotic cheerleading coach on the show Glee. Mm-hmm. That's become pretty popular. And, you know, I, I can take or leave Glee. I usually, I watch it on Hulu a lot. And, uh, and I usually just kind of fast forward through the musical numbers and just so that I can have undiluted Jane Lynch, um, as, uh, Sue, the crazy cheerleading coach over her team of cheerleaders who she calls the Cheerios. No, that's adorable. Oh no, it's not adorable, Molly. But it is hilarious. Well, I do like the name Cheerios. Yeah, it's Cheerios. I mean, I like cereal too. Yeah, but they portray you know like the it's it's all about sort of the high school stereotypes of like the evil cheerleaders who are out to get the lame nerdy Glee clubbers. And to be honest, Molly, um, I really just wanted to talk about Jane Lynch. There's no real point to that anecdote, but it does play in nicely to this topic we're talking about today, which is is cheerleading or should cheerleading be considered a sport? Because I guarantee you that if Sue the head coach of the Cheerios had her way, it would definitely be considered a sport. Right. I wanted to start the podcast with all sorts of cheers and whatnot. And Kristen was like, no, I'm talking about Jane Lynch. Didn't care to cheer this morning. I'm sorry, Molly. (laughs) See, I almost put on a skirt this morning just to get ready. But that just feeds into what we think of as the typical cheerleader in a skirt, loud, yelling, scrunchy, scrunchy. Yes. And um, lots of flips, lots of clapping. Basket tosses. Toe touches are my favorite. Yes. We did We did brush up on the uh, cheerleading terminology in preparation for this podcast. I now know what a herky is. Yeah. And that really dives way into the history of cheerleading that we should talk about. Because for you to understand cheerleading, you got to understand herky and herkimer. Yes. So let's just dive in with the first cheers. The first cheers. Um, and Because that's weird to think about. Because for me, cheering just seems like a natural response to watching your favorite sports team play. Yeah. You got to cheer. I mean, before cheerleaders, did people just sit on their hands or did they do snaps like people do in, in avant-garde cafes, Molly? 
People always need a leader, Kristen. We're just blind sheep wandering around. We need uh, people designated to lead us in shears. Yeah, like someone to start the wave if no one starts the wave. Yes, if, if it will never end. That's philosophical. If no mm-hmm. one starts the wave, will it ever end? But I doubt that was on the mind of the people watching the very first intercollegiate football game in 1869. At Princeton University? Yes, between Princeton and Rutgers. That's probably going to be the only sports fact I'll retain for any sort of trivia contest, but the first intercollegiate football game between Princeton and Rutgers. And the Princeton crowd got in on the action and started shout- shouting things like, Sis Boom Raw. I wonder how they came up with those syllables. That's how they got into Princeton, I guess. Sis Boom Raw, yeah. Th- th- those are the kind of minds at Ivy League schools. And so by the 1880s, they'd formed a whole pep club, but it was all male. Because back in those days, mostly men were going to college. And so Princeton grad Thomas Peebles took all the cheers he'd learned at Princeton and went to the University of Minnesota. And Minnesota just ate all this cheering up. They were like, yes, we love to cheer. We're going to have fight songs, footballs. We're going to come a just a, a dynamic event to attend. And then, Molly, something happened. On November 2nd, 1898, when the University of Minnesota football team was down for the count, they couldn't score, they were having a hard time getting that pigskin over the line, and a man named Johnny Campbell decided to do something about it, and he let a cheer. He let a cheer, Molly, that would echo through the ages into today's football arenas, okay? Johnny Campbell started cheerleading. So on that day... The day cheerleading was born. The day that will live in infamy. Well, not infamy, Molly, but go ahead. He picked up the megaphone. He had five other men with him. They were designated yell leaders. And they rallied the team to victory. Remember, they'd been in a slump. Been in a slump. Minnesota couldn't score. By chatting raw. 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 Ski you ma. Hoorah. Hoorah. Varsity, varsity. Minnesota. And a little rhyme. I mean, how could cheerleading not catch on after that? And it did. The first organized cheerleading squad was born. And as American Cheerleader wrote, no sporting event would ever be the same. Would ever be the same. Yeah, so we have Johnny Campbell, 1898, and his team of five yell leaders with their with their rah-rah, Minnesota cheer. And uh, for a while after that, the cheer squads were all male. Yes, and in 1923, University of Minnesota had another milestone when they first welcomed women to the field. So what we think of as this very stereotypical female activity started as male and really didn't become predominantly female until World War II when all the men went off to war. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1940s, we have a man named Lawrence Herkimer. Yes. The father of the Herky. Mm-hmm. Arrive on the scene. And Herkimer loved cheering. Yes. Probably more than anything else in the world. In his, in the entire world. <laughs> cheering was his life. Even and his he, loved ones. And he invented, and he invented the, the signature cheer jump called the Herky. And it's basically like a split in the air, but your back leg is, is bent. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because, um, Herky was a little embarrassed about the form of that jump because it was supposed to be a perfect split. But actually, in its flaw, was born the quintessential cheerleading maneuver. Yeah, this is a time when it really behooved us to have some videos so that Kristen could do some herkies for you. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) She did not seem enthused when she said that. But in 1951, he officially incorporates the National Cheerleaders Association. And later on, there are going to be a few more cheerleading associations. I read that they all kind of have their own vibe, their own rules, their own, you know, things that they approve of in the whole cheering spectrum. But this is the the main one, the first one. And another thing Herky gave us, he called it the shake-a-roo. But then later it became the pom-pom. The pom-pom. Well, he first called it a pom-pon because he heard that pom-pom, with an M, had vulgar connotations in other cultures. So, Herky, thank you for trying to be politically incorrect, but we'll take the pom-pom. Pom-pon is just kind of hard to say. Pom-pon. Oh, I thought it was a typo when I was first reading it, but that's a fun fact for you. That it's technically a pom-pon. Yeah, and the pom-pon is patented, U.S. patented, so... And he also uh, invented spirit sticks, which are kind of like pom-poms without the palm. I think a spirit stick can be anything. I mean, embody your spirit in it, Kristen. Don't limit it to not having palms on it. Yeah. And then we fast forward to the 1980s. And this is when cheerleading kind of goes on steroids, if you will. That's not nice to cheerleaders, Kristen. Well, I mean it metaphorically, Molly, (laughs) because this is the birth of competitive cheerleading. Mm -hmm. When cheerleading really goes from the sidelines and into the competition field room arena where they uh, start doing all these crazy moves and cheerleading becomes a lot more dangerous because girls are doing very uh, high level maneuvers, gymnastic maneuvers, really. Right. Without the 1980s, we could have never had the movie Bring It On where two cheerleading teams compete. And at the same time, I was reading a lot of schools used to have gymnastics programs and they got cut because it was too costly to insure all those gymnasts. And so that's when gymnastic um, gymnasts started moving into cheerleading, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, maybe at first they had like one girl who could do flips and then to, to stay competitive, to make the squad, basically everyone had to be able to do like flips and pyramids and all sorts of stuff. So. Should we talk about some of the dangers that can happen when you do all that crazy stuff? Yeah, Molly. It is not uh, It is not for the faint of heart. I think if I were forced to be on a cheerleading squad, well, I'm tall, so this would happen anyway. But even if I were tiny, I would prefer to be a base because I don't want anyone throwing me up in the air and then relying on them to catch me. I don't even like trust falls. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> scary. I just got a lot of ideas about how I could freak Kristen out. But regardless, um, yes, there are the girls who are bases and there are the girls who fly. Now, one of the problems is that girls who fly, the ones who are thrown up in the air, some schools have weight restrictions, so that can possibly lead to eating disorders for those girls. But the reason they have weight restrictions is in an attempt to keep these stunts more safe. Because right now, like we said, trailing is pretty unsafe. It's become the leading cause of catastrophic injury in young female athletes. Um, and by that, I mean death, disability related to head trauma and spine trauma. And it causes 65% of those injuries in high school or college sports. And the number of cheerleading accidents, just, you know, like a sprain, a bruise, whatever, it was 5,000 in 1980 before those competitions came on. And now it's about 26,000 to 28,000. It's quadrupled. Yeah, the risk of injury has certainly soared. And because of that, college teams are no longer allowed to perform three-person high pyramids or do double flips, and high school teams can't perform flipping basket tosses and twisting dismounts are also banned on basketball courts. Because can you imagine, Molly, being tossed into the air and falling on a basketball court? It can have some pretty serious consequences. Um, for instance, I believe it was in either 2003 or 2004, a high school cheerleader named Ashley Burns actually died from 
a cheerleading accident. Right. She landed on her stomach and it caused her spleen to rupture. Um, now, I will say that some cheerleading advocates say that these numbers might be sort of inflated for for weird reasons. I mean, when you look at uh, if when you put it against um, something like football, um, this is these numbers come from Kate Torgovnik, who wrote a book about cheerleading. She said in any given year, six out of every thousand cheerleaders end up in an emergency room. But in football, 42 out of every thousand players end up in an emergency room. So it may just be that we're. Freaking out because these are young, attractive girls as opposed to guys who, you know, are getting hurt all the time in these really um, aggressive sports. Now, Molly, an article from the Boston Globe actually makes an entirely different point about uh, the risks of cheerleading. It says that since 1998, the NCAA's catastrophic injury insurance program found that 25 percent of its claims for all college student athletes resulted from cheerleading, 25%. And then it points out that when you consider that the ratio of college cheerleaders to football players is about 12 to 100, that 25% seems like a pretty huge figure. Now, granted, a majority of the injuries that cheerleaders sustain are more things like muscle strains and pulls and ligament injuries and tendon injuries, but the problem is we're seeing more catastrophic injuries Right. And it's worth noting also that cheerleaders practice year round because they do all the sports, whereas, you know, a football player has a a more limited season. But how the ladies are getting this these injuries sort of comes down to the question we're going to ask today is whether cheerleading is a sport or not, because you bring up those insurance uh, claims. And that's sort of like the one place where cheerleaders are definitively counted as athletes is for that insurance purpose. Mm -hmm. They only recently became available for this kind of insurance. Um, and it's up to schools and states to decide what kind of oversight as an organ, you know, as a sport or as an activity that cheerleading has. In some states, it's akin to being on the debate team where you just have a faculty advisor and it doesn't have to be anyone with any sort of training. It's just someone who has the time and the desire to work with girls who want to cheerlead. Um, if it was a sport, you might have a more trained coach who could perhaps, you know, teach girls to do things so they don't get as many injuries. Kind of like Sue on Glee. She also ruins girls' self-esteem in the meantime, but she is very well trained. <laughs> Sorry, I just keep plugging, plugging Jane Lynch. I can't stop. That's okay. But yeah, so this is the question is, if a school calls cheerleading a sport, they're going to have to invest in a really well-trained coach who has to go to all these camps and all these training seminars to learn about cheerleading. Um, and some schools just don't have the money for that. So sometimes it's a question of finance. You know, if we're going to make it a sport... Do we give, you know, girls equal time in a gym to practice? Are they just in a classroom practicing? Can we afford to buy the mats and so on and so forth? And so it's really, um, it's sort of a mess in reading about all the places where it's considered a sport versus where it's considered an activity. So some are wondering whether we should just by and large say, Hey, this is a sport because it's really athletic. Look at all these flips they're doing. They compete, et cetera, et cetera. And some are just saying, Hey, these are girls who cheer on the sideline. Yeah, because right now um, we can't give you a specific number of how many college cheerleaders there are in the U.S. because the NCAA doesn't even track it because it does not consider it a sport. But um, it, like you said, it has extended its catastrophic injury coverage, insurance coverage to cheerleaders. But um, because of the high incidences of claims made by cheerleaders as of August 2006 in order to be covered by the NCAA, um, catastrophic injury insurance program, it requires that all collegiate squads be supervised by a coach with safety certification by the American Association of Cheerleading Coaches and Advisors. Now, on a high school level, only 15 to 18 states 
actually regulate cheerleading that closely. So to answer whether it should be a sport or not with a, with a legitimate coach, let's go to the American Association of Cheerleading Coaches and Administrators position paper on this very topic. And they looked at another position paper by the Women's Sports Foundation that defined a sport. Because if we're going to call a sport, we're going to be really definitive about it. And they said a sport activity is one that involves propelling a mass through space or overcoming the resistance of a mass, contesting or competing against, with, or an opponent, governed by rules which explicitly define the time, space, and purpose of the contest and the conditions under which a winner is declared, and the acknowledged primary purpose of the competition is a comparison of the relative skills of the participants. So it's easy to see how something like baseball is a sport. Okay, you've got the mass hurtling through the air. Um, you've got rules. You've got, you know, very clear ways to win or lose a game. Now, in cheerleading, the mass propelling through space is obviously another person. Um, competing against with an opponent. This is the big hang-up because cheerleading can be a competitive sport. There are squads who aren't even associated with schools who go off to these competitions. But it's not like the two squads are facing off against each other at the same time. They compete, and then they are judged on their performance, and then so on and so forth. So that's why this American Association of Cheerleading Coaches and Administrators has said it's not a sport. Cheerleading is not a sport because, you know, it's they're, you know, it's just a judge of one performance against another. Yeah, they say that it doesn't meet that criteria. And because of that, they suggest developing an entirely new category for cheerleading called an athletic activity, which kind of sounds like a sport to me as well, but I guess it would be kind of different because they say that dance, drill teams, and marching bands could also possibly be folded into this. Now, one thing when we were researching this podcast that I really liked was this paper written by Laura Grindstaff and Emily West called Cheerleading and the Gendered Politics of Sport. And it went and actually asked cheerleaders, hey, should this be a sport or not? And the real reason that cheerleaders, and they talked to both male and female cheerleaders, we should probably specify that. Mm -hmm. Um, The real reason that cheerleaders wanted this to be a sport was so they would get the respect that playing a sport entailed. You know, obviously, if you think back to high school, I remember, you know, everyone liked the football team, you know, respected them for what they were doing. And cheerleaders were just sort of there, you know, sort of accessories on the field. Right. So girls who obviously work hard and are really athletic at, you know, doing these amazing stunts want the credit naturally for what they're doing and they want the respect that goes with a sport. Makes sense. They put a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, and like, I, I mean, I respect the fact that they are willing to be tossed very high into the air and then caught in trusting arms. <laughs> Couldn't do it. So the argument that this paper makes though, Kristen, is that um, they want this respect. Obviously both males and females who are involved in cheerleading want the respect But the very fact that it's males and females may be what undermines its status as a sport. But Molly, wouldn't it, doesn't it seem great though that, that competitive cheerleading is really one of the only mainstream sports that men and women compete side by side? Well, see, that was what the paper was saying is that it seems almost like this really cool evolution of athletics that has started as just sort of this sideline activity and now it's morphed into this thing that you have to be in great shape to do. Um, you know, you, the male cheerleaders work out side by side with football players, but by that very sort of evolution, that's what's undermining it. If the men become hyper masculine almost to prove that they're just as athletic as a football player, um, probably at the same time, what the girls are doing is still maintaining the kind of girly, uh, accessories of cheerleading, the short skirts, 
the the hair, the makeup, the pom poms. Could we use the phrase heteronormative, Molly? We could. I think from this point out, almost heteronormative, though using the word heteronormative could be could be a drinking game. I don't want to suggest people drink during this podcast, but this paper really goes into the heteronormative things that cheerleading represents. For one, the sideline function. You got women on the sides cheering, and they're saying this could be likened to a heteronormative relationship where the woman is the cheerleader for the breadwinning husband. Mm-hmm. And um, the paper asked a lot of these male cheerleaders, hey, what do you think about being on the sideline cheering for the guys? And they're like, we hate it. The only reason we do cheerling is to go to these competitions and throw girls in the air. So to sum it up, while we have this athleticism and girls want to have respect for the athleticism that they're demonstrating on the on the sidelines, Emily West and her colleague are arguing that it's really flawed societal norms that are holding cheerleading back from really getting the respect that it deserves. Exactly. I mean, it's an exaggerated argument, I think. But I think it's, you know, when you think about a guy who's a cheerleader who wants to be seen as an athlete as opposed to a stereotype of a gay cheerleader, then, yeah, they're going to overemphasize how masculine they are, which I think in turn would cause the females to say, hey, we're still cute, we're still attractive. We're still like the most popular girls in school. I mean, it's such a female icon that women are always trying to fulfill the role. Well, Molly, gender politics aside, uh, there is still this issue of competition, competitive cheerleading, and whether or not it's so dangerous and so unregulated that it really just shouldn't be happening, um, or if it deserves to get more attention and more funding from schools to make it a safer and classified sport mm-hmm. is something that I think is, is still needs to be worked out. And it's interesting that um, Lawrence Herkimer, a.k.a. the father of the Herky, Oh, um, yeah, he's waiting on this as well. And he's kind of con- concerned about this overemphasis on the competitive side of cheerleading because he thinks that it gets away from the heart of cheerleading, which, you know, it's what it was, what was demonstrated by Johnny Campbell on November 2nd, 1898, you know, as far as sis being boom raw. sis boom raw, Minnesota, uh, it's, it's, it gets away from the spirit of cheerleading as, as a, a way to unify a school to cheer on their their athletes. Right. It comes down to what will rally up the crowd. Basically, Herky thinks that cheerleading squads have to be assets to their school. They need to provide school spirit. Mm -hmm. And it comes down to whether you think school spirit is watching a girl flip across the field or whether it's just having a girl lead you in a cheer. And then, Molly, if cheerleading becomes a sport, who will cheer for the cheerleaders. That's true. And that's one argument the cheerleaders made when they were asked by Laura Grindstaff and Emily West whether they were a sport. It was like, how can a sport cheer on a sport? Yeah. So, I mean, that's another philosophical quandary. Yeah, I think we're getting into some strange, like, postmodern debate over skirts. It's heavy. And pom-poms. And, um, but you know what UConn's doing? Yes. They are getting rid of a uh, of the cheerleading squad with gymnasts. Basically, if you're trying out for their cheerleading squad, their spirit squad, no gymnastic ability is required. You just go, you yell, you yell your heart out, cheer on UConn, and gymnasts, not welcome. Yeah. So, I mean, I think maybe we could see this thing divide into two things. One would be like competitive cheerleading, but it seems more like a dance squad almost. And then one would just be school spirit squads. So to sum it up, Molly... Should cheerleading be considered a sport, according to that American Association of Cheerleading Coaches? 
Not yet. No. I mean, I think it remains to be seen. I, I, I almost wonder if the split would be the best thing. Yeah. But I think that would break old Herky's heart. It would break the spirit sticking, too. Oh, no. But I think no matter what, Molly, as long as competitive cheerleading is going on, because competitive cheerleading isn't going to stop. You know, there are far too many, far too many organizations and teams that are competing right now. But the number one thing that needs to happen is they need to make competitive cheerleading safer, whether they consider it a sport or not. Having cheerleading account for 65% of all female catastrophic injuries shows that something needs to be done. Right. I agree. And, you know, I think also we need to just sort of, everyone needs to change their stereotypes about cheerleaders. They are pretty unfairly stereotyped as, you know, dumb blondes and skirts. The Cheerios. The Cheerios, yeah. And so I think that because it's such a female icon, people can twist it around to either fit a stereotype they want or to break it, which brings us to our last point, which is the issue of radical cheerleaders. Yeah, radical cheerleaders are groups of people who get together to basically use cheerleading tactics to protest and demonstrate as a form of activism. And it was started in the mid-1990s in, uh, by two sisters from Florida, Amy and Kara Jennings. And so Amy sees cheerleaders as positive role models as opposed to that mean girl stereotype. You know, she says they're athletes, they're strong, they work really hard, and she thought that the same principles of firing up a crowd just so easily translated to activism. So now there are these loose networks of men and women who get together and will do cheerleading moves to protest things like livable wages, um, they'll cheer against wars uh, for peace, and they'll march in pride parades, all sorts of stuff. Um, I will say there was a quote from the editorial director of American Cheerleader magazine, Sheila Noon, who, when she was asked about these liberal squads who sometimes grow out, go out and their pom-poms are made of, like, garbage bags mm-hmm. and they're wearing, like, you know, jokey kind of costumes. She was like, it is a warping of what cheerleading is all about. Cheerleaders have an uphill battle of gaining respect, and that's the last thing we need. So that's her opinion, but maybe we just all need to all respect cheerleaders and all women and all men. Because really, Molly, at the end of the day, everybody can be a cheerleader. I cheerlead for you, Kristen. Thank you, Molly. And I for you. <laughs> you know who it else took a cheer- long time to respond. <laughs> no, I do. I do. Sincerely. And you know who else I cheer for? Our listeners? Our listeners. Yes, let's do listener mail. This one actually sort of relates to cheerleading kind of indirectly. This is from Andrew, who wrote in, I'm kind of upset. You read a listener's mail that was very male bashing and promoted women to be the only good and said you liked it. Part of what they said was that most men are scumbags while most women are good. That's a very discriminating comment. What about women that leave guys with the kids? I've been engaged three times, and apparently that was the cue for them to go cheating. Other than that, I've been cheated on plenty of times, yet I've never cheated. So, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you read a mail, uh, listener mail that was so um, so hurtful. We want to cheer on mails as well. Yes. I mean, this is a podcast where we talk a lot of, a lot of issues from a female perspective, which people have written in and said, you know, sometimes that we might um, trivialize the male's point of view in that. Yeah, but we do want to cheer on the men because here at Mom Stuff, we appreciate men and women alike. Yes. As Andrew put it, there are bad men and good men, bad women and good women. Yep. So sorry for anything that might have come off as a little too male bashing because we accept and love everyone. Sis Boomba. Sis Boomba, listener. So if that you doesn't ha- really rhyme. No, it doesn't. You can work on it, though. Um, uh, so if you have anything that you would like to send our way, please send us an email 
at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you also have a blog that you can check out. It's called How To Stuff. And you can also head over to our website to see other things that Molly and I are working on. It is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other, through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality? At our inability to get basic things done? At the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point. But which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.